trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. Oh, man. Someone's been tweaking with my volume button. You know, this is one of the hazards of working from home, though. It's it's that uh, my kids occasionally, I don't know why. I mean, I should take it as a compliment. They think it's cool to sit in Dad's office chair because Dad's office is right there. The studio is right there. And I guess when you're chatting with your little teenage girlfriend on the phone, you can be cool and sit and, you know, maybe twiddle knobs or something here. But I'm telling you, they need to stop doing this. <laughs> it causes technical difficulties for me. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. We got a lot going on today. I want to mention that the show is brought to you in part by our friends at uh, the uh, the Staple Turner's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Easy for me to say, but I'm serious when I tell you if you are in the market for a home mortgage or maybe a refinance of your existing mortgage, you should go talk to my friend John Staples. You can find him at staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. Keep in mind, Patriot Home Mortgage, they started small. They started in St. George, Utah. Now the company is 23 states strong, and they have all the resources to help you make things happen. And lots of experience. And good people. Did I mention good people? Because they have really great people like John Staples and his wife, Heather, who can help make your dreams happen as well. StaplesMortgage.com. It's the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right. So I try to stay aloof, or at least unfazed by the upcoming general election. I, you're not going to find me getting too wound around the axle over, you know, how's Trump doing in the polls, and is, is Joe Biden making a comeback? Which one of them is going to win? And but I will, I will tell you straight up, I would would greatly prefer Trump over Biden, if for no other reason the the people who are opposing Trump are are simply showing themselves to be some of the most reprehensible human beings on the face of the earth. So it's it's not such a matter of, you know, I end my prayers in, in Donald Trump's name. It's it's more a matter of, yeah, the alternative is is so much worse. And, you know, I didn't vote for him in 2016. And I, I felt that now I just don't feel like he meets that minimum threshold of of statesmanship that I would need in order to, to cast my vote. And, and I can't say with 100 percent certainty but I'm, I will tell you the, the likelihood that I will vote for him in, in 2020 is much, much higher. I've been pushed into his corner. I've been pushed into Trump's corner because of the, the lunacy and the absolute despotic behavior of the people who are trying so hard and have been trying so hard for the last four years to convince us this man is a monster. So I, I, I'm going to start out here probably stepping on some toes because some people are going to be mad. Well, you're saying you're likely to support Trump. OK, you're mad. Go be mad. Others saying, Brian, you sound a little tepid in your support for Trump. Now I'm mad. OK, go be mad. My point is simply this. He hasn't been the monster that we were told he was going to be. 
And that doesn't mean that he's not a flawed human being. There's plenty wrong with Donald Trump. I think there's plenty wrong with any person who runs for political office. You might find a handful of exceptions, but for the most part, politics draws people who are either power seekers or opportunists. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that every single one of them is cut from the same cloth. It just means that you've got to be so careful before you put your trust in them. And, and I think that the biggest breakdown I was having this conversation with my friend Gary Welch just the other day, and that's the biggest breakdown we have is we forget these are people who we elect to work for us, not to rule us. We don't elect them to please dominate us, be a demigod, tell us what to do, guide us as a father would. You know, And there are people who, who literally talk like this to the candidates. What will you do to make me feel safe in everything in my life? It's, it's just sickening. But the fact is they work for us. And their number one job as representatives of the people is to make sure that government is kept within its proper limits, which is to say it's, it exists for the purpose of maintaining and guaranteeing our natural rights, our God-given rights. It's not there to provide us with all the goodies and a leg up, you know, whenever we stub our toe. You know, it's not there to bring us cookies and milk while we sit crying on the curb. But we've lost sight of this. And because of this, there is great power at stake. I'm sad to say that uh, we as a people, myself included, we have ceded so much power to politics that it has become a very violent enterprise because it's, it's, it, it's reminiscent of, you know, why do the drug cartels butcher each other in such horrific ways? Why would someone do that? And it's because of what's at stake. There are obscene profits that can be made, which that obscene amount of money translates into obscene amounts of power and access to power. And that's why when one cartel starts to move into another cartel's territory, Violence is the answer, not just violence, but overwhelming, mindless violence. Politics isn't so different. Maybe he has a little bit better public relations. That's that's about it. But here's the thing. You're going to think that I've gone down the rabbit hole. Maybe I have. I do have a box of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Reynolds uh, wrap aluminum foil sitting right here in case I need to fashion a hat. But I think that uh, in the last 24 hours... Two different articles have landed on my desk, which have made me sit up and go, ooh, okay, maybe I should be paying a little closer attention to this election, because whether or not I'm, I'm you know, attached at the hip to any of the candidates, and I'm really not, it's very clear. In this upcoming general election, there is massive potential for big waves, and I don't necessarily mean the good ones that, you know, drop a bottle, you know, with a note from your your long lost love at your feet. I'm talking about big waves that wreck things and and cause even further chaos in an already chaotic year. These two articles from two different authors warn about an unsettling possibility, which is a coup to remove Trump from the presidency if he wins re-election. Now I know that seems like so much, you know, DC fantasy, right? Pure political fantasy on the part of those sour lemon, you know, those sour grapes uh, losers from the D.C. insiders who just never could rein him in and make him their their guy. But it looks a lot more plausible given the events of the past few months. I'm going to start with Paul Craig Roberts. Paul Craig Roberts was an assistant U.S. secretary of the Treasury. 
He's been a very solid writer and analyst for many, many years. There's not much this guy gets wrong. Listen to what he has to say here. His article is titled, Democrats have planned a coup if Trump wins re-election. And he says, under the pretext that President Trump will not step down if he loses re-election, Democrats and the military security complex created what they call the Transition Integrity Project. The plan they've worked out is to take the presidency regardless of the vote. Trump's win is to be blamed on vote fraud. And Biden slash Kamala are forbidden to concede their defeat. Instead, the prostitutes, that would be the uh, heritage or corporate press, will conduct a propaganda campaign against Trump, alleging election fraud in order to cast Trump's reelection in doubt. The propaganda campaign against Trump will be conducted by assertions and fake news, just as was Russiagate, Impeachgate, and other orchestrated false charges against Trump. The media will back them to the hilt because the Democrats know that just like their other false allegations, that uh, that many stupid Americans, sorry, I'm going to have to edit a little bit here because he uses some profanity, will believe the lies. The prostitutes have done nothing for four years but tried to discredit President Trump in both the eyes of Americans and the world. The Democrat public sector U.S. Postal Union will not deliver mail-in votes for Trump from known red areas. And if that doesn't suffice, charges will be made that Trump had the U.S. Postal Service not deliver millions of votes for Biden slash Kamala. Charges absurd on their face as the Postal Union is a Democrat bastion. And searches will be sent for the missing ballots. Now, Paul Craig Roberts says when those missing ballots are found, all of this in quotation marks, Biden slash Kamala will be the winners. But he says, remember, the only voice here will be the anti-Trump prostitutes. Trump will have been closed out of Twitter and TV and radio communication with Americans. The next step, he says, is to unleash Antifa BLM violence in American cities. The prostitutes will portray the violence as America's rejection of Trump's theft of the election and refusal to leave office. Trump will be accused of destroying American democracy. The Democrats actually destroying American democracy will be portrayed as saving democracy from a power-mad tyrant. Now, we'll come back to this in a few moments, and I'm going to share the other article with you as well. I'm not asking you, hey, does this sound 100% true? All I'm asking you to consider is, does that sound plausible? If it were a year ago, I'd be like, no, not so much. After the events of this year, I'm not so sure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, does it sound plausible? The possibility that uh, maybe, just maybe, and it's not just the Democrats, but Washington, D.C. insiders could be setting up President Trump for a coup. You know, you don't have to be a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporter to recognize the danger in what that would represent. Paul Craig Roberts, by the way, he he has a lot of links in his uh, article here that take you to the Democrats' own words and a description of the Democrats' plan. He says the Democrats have been gaming this planned election theft for months. 
The public is being prepared for it. And he says they have described how they're going to pull off their destruction of American democracy. Now, he says, from all appearances, Trump and the Republicans are going to let the Democrats have their way with them. He says the Democrat Party of today is not the Democrat Party of the past. Today, the Democrat Party is an anti-white, anti-American party. Democrats refuse to enforce law and order, except for shutdowns, right? Am I right, Gavin Newsom? Oh, sorry, he's busy arresting someone for swinging on a swing set. Instead, Paul Craig Roberts says Democrats defund police and permit looting and destruction of businesses and private property. Democrats say that law and order is a white privilege, and they will no longer support white privilege. White Americans who vote Democrat, he says, are too stupid to justify their existence. He says many white Americans have been deracinated by decades of propaganda in the public school systems. Universities, movies, and media exposing white evil. Many white Americans lack the confidence to defend themselves. And he says these dumb crap white Americans are the ones the Democrats are counting on to sit sucking their thumbs while Democrats pull off a color revolution and overthrow an elected president. Now he says the Democrats are organized and the White House isn't. Trump is isolated. He has an establishment government that will not go to bat for him. The Department of Justice has yet to bring indictments of the treasonous individuals in the CIA, FBI, and Democrat Party that orchestrated Russiagate. He said in 2016 that Trump did not know Washington and therefore had no idea who to appoint to his government to help him with his assault on the establishment. Now, Trump has done many things for, for Israel, but Jews are Democrats and Paul Craig Roberts says it will be the Jewish-owned media that discredits Trump's re-election. He also says Trump supporters are not organized. Trump's own appointee to the Department of Homeland Security is about to declare Trump supporters a lethal threat to the United States. So unless Trump wins by such a large vote that it cannot be discredited, the Democrats' coup against Trump and American democracy will succeed. Isn't that something? Now, I want to go to the other article which talks about this. Um, this article is written by Michael Anton, and this was published on the AmericanMind.org, AmericanMind.org. And it confirms a lot of what Paul, uh, Paul Craig Roberts is saying. And I know it's, it's easy to want to pigeonhole and say, well, Paul Craig Roberts is a right-wing crackpot, and that's why you can't believe anything he says. I think he's right. I think he actually got this one right. And what Michael Anton says is, is, as if 2020 weren't insane enough already, we now have Democrats and our ruling class masters openly talking about staging a coup. And it's, it's okay if you missed it. He says you might have. You know, with the riots, the lockdowns, the other daily mayhem we're being forced to endure in this, the most wretched year of his lifetime. But he says it's happening. And it started with military brass quietly indicating that troops should not follow a presidential order. They were bolstered by many former generals, including President Trump's own first Secretary of State, or Defense rather, who stated openly that what the brass would only hint at. Then, as nationwide riots really got rolling in early June, the sitting Secretary of Defense himself all but publicly told the President not to invoke the Insurrection Act. His implicit message was, Mr. President, don't tell us to do that because we won't, and you know what happens after that. 
Now, this enthused Joe Biden, who threw subtlety to the winds. The former United States senator for 26 years and vice president for eight has not once but twice No, not twice, but thrice confidently asserted that the military will escort Trump from the White House with great dispatch should the president refuse to leave. Another former vice president, Al Gore, publicly agreed. Now, he says one might dismiss such comments as the ravings of a dementia patient and a has-been who never got over his own electoral loss. But before you do, he says, consider this. Over the summer, a story was deliberately leaked to the press of a meeting at which 100 Democrat grandees, anti-Trump former Republicans, and other ruling class apparatchiks got together on George Soros' dime to game out various outcomes of the 2020 election. One such outcome was a clear Trump win. In that eventuality, former Bill Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, playing Biden, refused to concede, pressured states that Trump won to send Democrats to the formal Electoral College vote, and trusted that the military would take care of the rest. The leaked report from the exercise darkly concluded that technocratic solutions, courts, and reliance on elites observing norms are not the answer here, promising that what would follow the November election would be a street fight, not a legal battle. Now, two more data points among several that could be provided. Over the summer, two former Army officers, both prominent in the Democrat-aligned national security think tank world, wrote an open letter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in which they urged him to deploy the 82nd Airborne Division to drag President Trump from the Oval Office at precisely 12.01 p.m. January 20th, 2021. About a month later, Hillary Clinton declared publicly that Joe Biden should not concede the election under any circumstances. The old English major in me interprets the word any to mean no, none, nada, niente, zero, zilch, bupkis. You get the idea. That doesn't sound like the rhetoric of a party of a political party confident it will win an upcoming election. Now, these items are, to repeat, merely a short but representative list of what Byron York recently labeled coup porn. York seems to think this is just harmless fantasizing on the part of the ruling class and its democratic servants, and for some of them, no doubt that's true. But for all of them? Here he says, I'm not so sure. In his famously exhaustive discussion of conspiracies, Machiavelli goes out of his way to emphasize the indispensability of operational security, in other words, silence to success. The first rule of conspiracy is you do not talk about the conspiracy. The second rule of conspiracy is you do not talk about the conspiracy. So why are Democrats publicly talking about the conspiracy? Well, his answer is because they know that for it to succeed, it must not look like a conspiracy. They need to plant the idea in the public mind now that their unlawful and illegitimate removal of President Trump from office will somehow be his fault. Never mind the pesky detail that the president would refuse to leave only if he were convinced he legitimately won. Remember, Biden should not concede under any circumstances. Now, the second part of the plan is to produce either enough harvested ballots, lawfully or not, to tip close states or else dispute the results in close states and insist, no matter what the tally says, that Biden won them. The worst-case scenario for the country, but not for the ruling class, would be the results in a handful of states that are so ambiguous and hotly disputed that no one can rightly say who has won. Of course, that will not stop the Democrats from insisting 
they won. The public preparation for that has also already begun. Streams of stories and social media posts explaining how, while on election night it might look as if Trump won, close states will tip to Biden as all the mail-in ballots are counted. And the third piece is to get the vast and loud Dem-left propaganda machine ready for war. That leaked report exhorted Democrats to identify key influencers in the media and among local activists who can affect political perceptions and mobilize political action who could establish pre-commitments to playing a constructive role in the event of a contested election. In other words, blaring from every rooftop that Trump lost. Okay, so we'll talk about uh, what should we think of all this, much less what should we do right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yeah, word on the street is I'm uh, doing a simulcast with Alex Jones right about now. (laughs) Okay, sorry, you podcast listeners don't get to hear the uh, epic throwdown here, but uh, apparently our K-Talk listeners may be getting a, a little bit of the best of both worlds. Well, bully for you. No, that's that's great. I hope I hope your listening skills are uh, <laughs> are all they could be and should be. I've been sharing an article here from the AmericanMind.org. Actually, it's just AmericanMind.org about the coming coup. And I look. I before I go one syllable further, I have to tell you, I, I'm not trying to incite fear. I don't want to incite some kind of panic. Like, oh my gosh, the Democrats are trying to steal the coup or trying to steal the election through a coup. I think there's plausibility though especially given some of the public statements and some of the things and the positioning and, and yes, the violence in the streets of the last few months. And the author here says, it's pretty safe to assume that unless Trump wins in a blowout that can't be overcome by cheating or denied via the ruling class's massive propaganda operation, what they're going to be blurring from every rooftop, every Democratic politician and media organ will be shouting Trump lost. What then? Well, the Podesta assumption was that the military will side with the Democrats, and there are some reasons to fear they might. The Obama administration spent a great deal of time and political capital purging the official core of anyone not down with the program and promoting only those who are. Still in all, he says, determining the outcome of an election would be the most open political interference possible from our allegedly apolitical military. And it's plausible that the brass won't want to make its quiet support of the ruling class agenda that overt. The aforementioned chairman has already stated the military will play no role in the outcome of the election. Now, that's probably not a feint, but one wonders if it will hold given the obvious attempt to influence military thinking by people like Jeffrey Goldberg in his recent Atlantic essay. Can the Dems rely on the Secret Service to drag Trump out? He says, nah, I have my doubts on this one. He apparently has seen the service up close, and they really are, or at least they appear to be, apolitical. He says, if they don't believe Trump lost, I don't think they can be counted on to oust him. They have a job to do, which is protect the president, whoever it is. And that's something their officers take very seriously. Now, on the other hand, if they were to believe he did lose and was refusing to leave, he says it's possible they might act. But barring all that, what's left? Well, this is a phrase from the Democrat war game uh, that uh, you've probably been hearing 
from people like uh, Kamala Harris. Street fight. In other words, a repeat of this summer, only much, much bigger. Crank the propaganda to eardrum-shattering decibels. Fill the streets of every major city with, quote, protesters. Shut down the country and allow only one message to be heard. Trump must go. In other words, what's come to be known as a color revolution. The exact playbook the American deep state runs in other countries whose leadership they don't like, and in fact, like the one they're currently running in Belarus. Oust a leader, even an elected one, through agitation and call it democracy. The events of the last few months may be interpreted as an attempted color revolution that failed to gain enough steam, or as a trial run for the fall. Is the Trump administration prepared? Now, here's one thing they could do, and that's play their own war game scenario so as to game out possibilities and minimize surprises. They should also be talking to people inside and outside of government whom they absolutely trust to get a clearer sense of who on the inside won't go along with a coup and who might. They also need to set up or shore up right now communication channels that don't rely on the media or big tech. Once the ruling class gives the word that the narrative is Trump lost, all the president's social media accounts will be suspended. The TV channels, with the likely exception of Fox News, will refuse to cover anything he says. Count on it. He's going to need a way to talk to the American people, and he has to find the means now. For the rest of us, the important thing, the most important thing we can do is raise awareness. If there is a conspiracy to remove President Trump from office, even if he wins, they're telling you about it precisely to get you ready for it. So when it happens, you won't think it was a conspiracy. You'll blame the president. Michael Anton says, don't be fooled. So let's talk about this. And I mean, seriously, let's talk about it. 801-331-8113. How likely do you think it is? Like I say, if it was a year ago, I'd be like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would uh, maybe it would be a possibility, but probably out there. After what I've seen and the, the lengths to which particularly some Democratic leaders have been willing to go to excuse or ignore the violence that is being done in the name of, well, something's got to change and we'll burn the city down to show how love and tolerance are supposed to be, you know, the, the, the norm here. Yeah, I think, I think they're very capable of it. That's a scary thought. So what can you and I do, okay, besides sit here and say, man, that's scary. Seriously, I'm open to suggestions. 801-331-8113. I don't have the answers in terms of, well, first we need to uh, get people who are this tall and have them all line up alphabetically. No, um, I think what it's going to come down to more likely than not is every one of us who recognizes we have a stake in what goes on here is going to have to be about as squared away as we have ever been in terms of knowing that our character and our principles are both intact and unshakable. Because what's happening here is, if I'm reading this correctly, and, and I'm not just blaming the Democrats, there's a lot of Republicans, Mitt Romney, I'm looking your direction thinking you're probably a part of this too. This sounds to me like a complete comprehensive attempt to seize com total political power over our lives without our consent. Oh, but if you participate in voting, you consent. You say you'll abide by the results. 
Yeah, I can understand. What about the people who don't vote? Are they still bound? Come on, let's have some consistency in in that uh, manipulation. The bottom line is the political class has some things in store for us, and not that many people are really willing to go along with it. Even if you just look at the people who voted in 2016. I can't remember who it was who crunched the numbers. But they they came up with uh, something in the neighborhood of roughly 18% of Americans who actually, you know, got out there and voted, supported Donald Trump. And it was somewhat less, or maybe maybe it would have been about equal, that supported Hillary. The point being, the vast majority of Americans fall into the category of none of the above. And that's pretty much where I find myself most of the time. Then there's the matter of consent. Thomas L. Knapp had a great article on everythingvoluntary.com. Worth checking out. In fact, I'll have this in the show notes as well as the other articles that I've been sharing with you thus far. This one is called Silence is Not Consent in Politics Either. He says, when you undergo a medical procedure or volunteer for a research study, you're presented with forms to sign that will outline what's going to happen and what bad things could happen and expressly consenting to have those things happen. If you're accused of rape, he or she didn't physically resist isn't a, an acceptable defense. In fact, express consent is the emerging standard, sometimes to seemingly ridiculous degrees. In other words, uh, re-requesting consent at each stage of an encounter. Consent, he says, I think we can agree, is a big deal in America today. Well, it was a big deal in 1776, too, when Thomas Jefferson asserted in the Declaration of Independence that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Consent is a central issue in the 27 colonial grievances listed in the Declaration, one of which, imposing taxes on us without our consent, became the primary battle cry of the American Revolution. No taxation without representation. Now, to this day, American politicians proudly claim consent of the governed via democratic elections. But Thomas L. Knapp says that claim conflicts with the known facts. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the population of the United States, as of November 8, 2016, stood at 323,781,667. That evening, the winning candidate for the president received 62,984,828 votes nationwide. To put it a different way, he says about 19.5% of the people living in the U.S. consented to Donald Trump's presidency. Now, let's take it to uh, in 2014, Mitch McConnell elected to his sixth term in the U.S. Senate, 806,787 votes from a state of, from among a state with a population of about 4.4 million. In other words, about 18.3 percent of Kentuckians consented to be represented by Mitch in the U.S. Senate. Nancy Pelosi elected to her 17th term in 2018 to the U.S. Congress. The state's 12th U.S. House District in California boasts a population of 765,000. A whopping 35.5% of those she claims as her constituents consented to her claim to represent them. Are you getting the picture? That mandate that politicians are claiming is a lot flimsier than they would like us to believe. We'll come back to this in a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. So on that idea of consent, silence is not consent in politics. And I love how Thomas L. Knapp breaks down, you know, when you look at uh, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, even Donald Trump, it's very clear these politicians don't truly enjoy the consent of those whom they govern. The the voting uh, implies consent to be ruled by the winner. Or at least that's one of the interesting dodges to the obvious implication that, uh, well, you know, uh, you you consent to be ruled by whoever wins. The minority gets its say, but implicitly agrees to be bound by the results. But he says, even accepting that argument, it's a rare election in which a majority of those supposedly consenting to vote or to be ruled rather vote at all, whether it's for the winner or otherwise. And it's not just people who abstained from voting, right? It's not just the people, well, I'm not going to vote. <laughs> You can't make me consent. How about people who aren't even allowed to vote? Minors, non-citizen immigrants, prisoners, and in some states, felons who have completed their sentences. Others choose of their own accord to abstain from voting. They are the silent majority. They're not represented, but they're sure taxed. They've chosen no rulers, but they're ruled. And if they resist the rule of the minority and its representatives, they're caged or killed. So can government truly enjoy the consent of the governed? Under certain conditions, yes, says Thomas L. Knapp. Small political units operating on unanimous express consent, perhaps interfacing with other such units in a a system known as panarchy, could work. But in today's America, consent of the governed, he says, is a fairy tale. America's politicians enjoy no, no such consent, and they should stop pretending that they do. All right, got to shift gears here for a moment. Um, I'm sure you have heard the news headlines of late. Have you heard about the Sturgis motorcycle rally? Oh, they warned us when 650,000 people came together. The uh, COVID doomers were just sure that this was going to be the end of civilization. Well, they have uh, they have found someone to run interference for them, and now they're claiming that it spawned 250,000 coronavirus cases. This is an article from Reason Magazine. Elizabeth Nolan Brown says, Here's what we were told. An August motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, helped spread COVID-19 to more than a quarter million Americans, making it the root of about 20% of all new coronavirus cases in the U.S. last month. So said a new white paper from the IZA Institute of Labor Economics, at least. And, of course, national news outlets ran with it. The Hill tweeted, Sturgis Motorcycle Rally was super spreading event that cost the public $12.2 billion. NBC News said the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally held in South Dakota last month may have caused 250,000 new coronavirus cases. Oh my goodness. Well, the researchers say the Sturgis Rally represents a situation where many of the worst case scenarios for super spreading occurred simultaneously. That's what they said in their paper titled, The Contagion Externality of a Super-Spreading Event, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and COVID-19. Thankfully, Elizabeth Nolan Brown says not so fast. Let's take a look at what they actually tracked and what's mere speculation. According to South Dakota health officials, 124 new cases in the state, including one fatal case, 
were directly linked to the rally. Overall, COVID-19 cases linked to the Sturgis rally were reported in 11, case, 11 states rather, as of September 2nd to the tune of, about, uh, of at least 260 new cases. Now, there very well could be more cases that have been linked to the early August event, but so far, that's only 260 confirmed cases. That's about 0.1% of the number the IZA paper offers. To get to the astronomical number of cases allegedly spread because of the Sturgis motorcycle rally, the researchers analyzed anonymized cell phone data to track smartphone pings from non-residents and movement of those before and after the event. The study then linked those who attended and traveled back to their home states and compared changes in coronavirus trends after the rally's conclusion. Essentially, the researchers assumed that new spikes in cases in areas where people went post-rally must have been caused by those rally attendees, despite there being no particular evidence that this was the case. The paper, which has not been peer-reviewed, failed to account for simultaneous happenings like schools in South Dakota reopening, among other things, that could have contributed to coronavirus spread in some of the studied area. The researchers also assumed a $46,000 price tag for each person infected to calculate that $12.2 billion public health cost of the event. But that figure would only make sense if every person had a severe case requiring hospitalization. South Dakota epidemiologist Joshua Clayton said the results of the IZA paper do not align with what we know. Governor Christy Noem said the IZA paper isn't science, it's fiction. Isn't that interesting? By the way, Tom Woods had a really great write-up on this as well. Um, I, I liked uh, his, his question was, when will people be normal again? He says, you probably heard about the new paper purporting to show that, that uh, Sturgis Motorcycle Rally was responsible for 266,000 new COVID cases. Oh, and the health cost, $12.2 billion. He says, now, if this all seems a little ridiculous and over the top to you and conforms just a little too neatly to the narrative, dumb Trumpers who refuse to listen to the science are going to get people killed. Because that's probably, that's probably because it is ridiculous and over the top. So he's going to spend the next couple of days on his show digging into that paper. But he says the general thrust is this. No joy in your life, citizens, for there is a virus. Which brings me to what I really wanted to talk about. Los Angeles, I don't know if you've heard, just banned trick-or-treating this Halloween. Oh, I'm just gonna, I'm going to let it sink in for a moment so you can think about that. Wow, they must be really super sciencey in Los Angeles. So you know what's going to happen? Trick-or-treating is going to go on in most places, and nothing will come of it. Tom Wood said on Twitter today, someone asked, what is the end point for people who still won't resume their pre-COVID lives? Are they waiting for Fauci or a wise governor to signal the all clear? What will it take? So he says, that's the question I've been stumbling toward, but haven't quite asked so bluntly. And his reasoning, I think, is, is good here because doomers get upset when you mention the flu. It's relevant. We learn to live with it. We didn't discontinue life-giving pleasures for young people and indeed for all people, even though normal, though living normal lives will result in deaths from the flu. Now, if we get to a point where COVID claims 100 people per month, would that be sufficient? But if, the, <clears throat> if it even saves one life, logic is correct. How can it be? Will these people still be cowering in their homes even then? 
He says that's because we realize that truly human lives involve the very things that the world's Fauci's are now demonizing and warning us that we may never get back. And he asks, how do these people ever climb out of this? I don't mean how governments step back. I mean, how does someone who's convinced himself he cannot leave his house go back to being a normal person? And Tom Wood says, I honestly don't know. We may have two parallel societies for some time. Unfortunately, he says, the folks in the other society, the panic society, want to exercise power over you and how you make your living, how you live your life, you know, in the name of science. I don't know if you've, uh, if you have a kid who's headed off to college. Maybe you've heard about, oh, the danger of reopening these colleges. They did it too soon. 11,000 students tested positive for COVID-19. And I can't remember how many schools I saw in the, the study, but it was a total of a little over 11,000 students in between, I think it was like 12, maybe 15 different universities. And that seems really scary and outrageous, right? 11,000. Oh, my goodness. But you know what the media never talks about? You know what we never hear about because it would upset the narrative of how scary and dangerous this all is? Not a single one of those confirmed 11,000 cases had to go to the hospital. There was no hospitalization for any of them. What can we learn from that? Well, maybe, like we've been told all along, young people, while they may contract the virus, aren't at that great of risk from it. Someone who has a really adverse reaction to it is an outlier. They're not the norm. The greatest risk, just as we have known for many, many months, still belongs to those 70 years or older or 80 or above who have those comorbidities, who are struggling with diabetes or heart disease or some kind of, you know, weight issue. So maybe, just maybe, we could all step back and and just take, I don't know, a 500 milligram chill pill. I think it would be a good start. But I echo what Tom Woods is asking. At what point do we get back to normal? If you're waiting for someone to tell you that it's okay, you're going to be waiting a very long time. I think it's a decision we just have to make and be courageous enough to go out and do, regardless of the uh, nasty stares we might be getting. This is The Brian Hyde Show.